Hi everyone and welcome to Monday Morning 8am, a podcast from Firms Consulting that goes out, as you guessed it, every Monday morning at 8am, where we distill all of the insights from all of the noise out there that clogs up your inbox. This podcast and the accompanying newsletter, which usually contains links and other interesting information, can be obtained on firmsconsulting.com forward slash promo. Simply put in your email address and you'll be subscribed to this newsletter. The goal of this newsletter is to give advice and tips to our most loyal members, Firms Consulting Insiders and Firms Consulting Slides members. But of course, we make this available to all subscribers, all listeners, all readers. So let's get into some of the big themes we are seeing this week in the news. The first one is called the nuances of private equity strategy. Private equity and various forms of investment management, whether that's venture capital and so on, has become the in vogue form of financing. 20 years ago, it was investment banking. But over time, private equity has become the de facto most elite form of financing, at least from a reputational and PR perspective. Now, private equity has gone through different phases of growth. Initially, when private equity firms were still younger, a big part of their focus was going out there and saying, hey, you're a conglomerate. This division that you own, you are not able to extract the maximum value from it because you have multiple conflicting demands on your capital and management time. So why don't we buy this from you? We will pay you a premium, a bigger premium than you could get if you manage this business by yourself and you probably would manage it into the ground so that you'd have to shut it down or sell it anyway. But if you sell it to us now, you could get a bigger premium and we want to buy it because we believe with the right kind of focus and attention, we can create so much value from this that we'll make a return so everyone's happy. So that was the big part of private equity. And then as private equity firms became more successful and larger and started piling in funding from institutional shareholders, they started not just going after divisions of big companies, but entire companies themselves. And that has just taken off. But there's only so many divisions of big companies and big companies you can acquire in established Western markets. Then we saw a shift where private equity firms started moving outside the United States. And in the Latest shift, we're seeing private equity firms moving into Japan, whereby they're expecting that things like COVID, the digitization of the Japanese economy is going to force Japanese conglomerates to pick and choose where to compete. And of course, that may happen, that may not happen. It's not the first time private equity firms have chosen to make a bet in a market and they mistime the bet. That's normal, that's standard investment risks that any investor would take. And of course, the holy grail of private equity that nobody wants to touch because it's such a contentious topic is taking over state-owned enterprises and taking them public. That's an area that very few private equity executives even want to think about because of the difficulties of buying a crown jewel of a country with so much emotional attachment and, of course, their strict labor laws. So any of the tough cost cutting and tough decision making that a private equity firm can traditionally make is constrained when dealing with former state owned enterprises, which is a pity because in terms of the universe of potential juicy assets sitting out there, former state owned enterprises, whether you're buying the entire enterprise or a portion of the enterprise, 
there's a lot of value to be created there. But of course, there needs to be some kind of compact between the government and the private equity firm whereby the necessary changes can take shape. Now, the big trends that I've spoken to, that's just a few of them. There are many trends in private equity. One of them that the Financial Times talks about is the emergence of the towers that distribute signals for cell phone companies. Those tower assets are being spun off to private equity players who believe there's a market for consolidating them. And through consolidation, they'll get efficiencies, but a bargaining power, they can raise the value and exit them either to an IPO or selling them to someone else. Now, when I talk about the nuances in private equity strategy, we have a lot of clients who are very successful in business, have asked, who have access to funding from the Middle East, China, and so on. And of course, firms consulting over years has changed to become a private equity firm. But we have a lot of clients who come to us and say, help us. And what I want to talk about here is the insight that you need to have a distinguished private equity strategy. Just saying you are going to be a private equity firm and raise a lot of cash from someone doesn't mean that any success will come your way. I'll give you some examples of this, right? Let's look at hot topics in private equity, whatever that may be. Let's assume it's the buying of towers from telcos companies. Now, everyone's reporting about it. A few private equity firms have went this route. So other private equity firms have looked at this and said, you know what? Yeah, we're going to do this too. When you're pursuing a valid trend in the market, such as consolidating towers from telcos, the fact that it's validated means many other people agree with you. And if many other private equity firms agree with you, what you have is a bidding war. When you're involved in a bidding war, you're going to overpay. That's generally what a bidding war means. Which means that the more and more hot or topical a trend is in private equity, the more you're going to overpay. Which means you have to be a lot cleverer, a lot smarter at thinking of how you're going to extract the value from the asset. Because by default, you're overpaying, which means you have less margin of error. So what is the insight of that insight? The insight of that insight is that if you can see value in something that someone else doesn't see, and you can bid for that asset that nobody else thinks there's value there, and you have a way of extracting that value, you're not only going to underpay, you're also most likely going to be able to create an asset that there's no competitors for, so when you put it onto the market later, you could get the highest value. So you need to think like a strategist here. You need to ask yourself, how do I create value from an asset that nobody else sees any value in? That's not corporate finance work. That's not um, investment banking. That's pure strategy. Finding value where there's no value and pulling it out. Firms Consulting Slides members, we're going to show you in an update to slides that will come this year, how we would go about analyzing a sector that is effectively dying. So imagine you have a sector where the consensus is saying, you know what, this sector has no future. We're going to show you that, yes, it doesn't matter what the market says. It doesn't matter what the spin is in the press. If there is a market, that market is not going to disappear overnight. Even if the market disappears, the strongest players will survive. Even if the market will eventually disappear, the time over which it disappears, whether it's 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, means money, a lot of money can be made in that time horizon. But how do you go about finding value in a sector where there is apparently no value? 
Because it's very easy to build a private equity strategy when you're looking for value where everyone thinks there's value. It's easy to find the value, but of course, you're going to have to pay more. So while you may find the value, the cost of finding the value is so high that the value that you return to yourself is incrementally lower. But if you can find value in a sector where there's supposedly no value, there's no competition for the asset, you don't have to overbid, you can probably also get it at a significant discount because everyone thinks it's worth leaving the sector, you will be in a strong position. So what we'll, what Slides members can see is how we go about analyzing a sector that's dying. How do we choose what assets to keep? How do we analyze those assets? How do we make the decision in terms of prioritizing what things will be done once we acquire this asset? Of course, you know, a lot of people want to go into private equity, think it's all about the, the modeling, the cash flow modeling. But a model is not that smart. It depends on what you tell the model to do. And what you tell the model to do is based on how you understand values created in the sector. You know, we spoke about the fact that if you pursue a trend in private equity, such as the consolidation of telcos towers, you're going to face competition from other private equity firms, which will put up the price, which will reduce the return you can create once you eventually go public. But there's another problem you face. If you are in a sector that's automatically growing and people see it as a strong vehicle for value creation in the future, you not just have to worry about other private equity firms, you also have a very educated executives in the target company. And those, and those educated executives are not just sitting on their you know, plush leather chairs and doing nothing, no. For a lot of the things that you want to do as a private equity firm, these smart executives are gonna do it anyway. So you're in a race with them. You've gotta acquire the assets before they make the changes because after they make the changes, they're gonna price in the improvement they made into the sales price, which again means you have to overpay. Now many, not many years ago, a while back we had a private equity program whereby we took in 10 clients and placed them at private equity firms. We placed nine out of 10, we decided not to work with the 10th client for ethics reasons and released them from the program. All nine people we placed in, we didn't focus on their modeling capabilities. And that was one of the biggest challenges I had working with these clients because everyone said, Michael, I need to learn how to model leverage buyout models, cash flow models. And I would tell them, you know, this is like the most basic skill. I don't want to teach you that because you can learn that from an Excel model. You can learn that from YouTube videos. There are many programs that teach you that. What I want to teach you is how do you decide what you're going to model? How do you decide where the value lies? Because what makes you a principal in a fund whereby you share in the profits is whether you can find value so that when the private equity firm invests in your idea, they earn a return. So how do you think about that? And it's about a deep understanding of strategy. How is value created? So as you are thinking about private equity, whether you run a private equity firm, whether you're a strategy person trying to set up a private equity shop, or whether you have a lot of funding, remember that that means very little unless you know how to create value. But to create value, you first have to understand where value lies. And that's purely a strategy skill. The next big theme, the second big theme is what I call catching the next big strategy wave. And we're going to stay in the telco sector for now. So many of you have been following the news whereby there have been on again, off again stories about how the New York Stock Exchange wanted to delist the three largest Chinese telcos players. Now, I've been a strategy consultant for a long time, all the way to partner, senior partner in corporate strategy and corporate finance. 
And I've worked with telcos companies for a very long time. I worked with them from the time when um, SMS was still a big thing and companies were trying to figure out how do they protect the SMS business. I worked at a time when internet service providers were seen as a cash cow. I worked at a time when iPhone was negotiating, when Apple was negotiating to launch their iPhone. I worked at a time when apps came through. I worked at a time when new browsers came through. I worked at a time when Facebook came through. But here's the thing. In every single big value shift in the telco sector, the telcos companies got left behind because they saw themselves as purely the provider of the plumbing on which all the other fancy stuff sits. It's in a manner of speaking, an analogy of this would be they saw themselves as a real estate company and they didn't care who built what on their real estate. They just felt they had to own the property. And it doesn't matter if someone built an extremely valuable building that generated a ton of cash, they didn't care. But there is a change because companies like AT&T have made what I would call the anti-consensus bet. Because if you look at Verizon and AT&T, Verizon's share price is through the roof. Well, relative to AT&T anyway. But Verizon is making a bet that they are going to be a pure play telco whereby their primary core focus is going to be managing the infrastructure of a telco's company. AT&T and Verizon have bid multiple billions of dollars to buy the latest wireless spectrum in the auction from the FCC to launch out 5G. But AT&T has made a different bet. AT&T is saying, hold on a second. If we own the infrastructure, why don't we put something on that infrastructure that generates a greater return? And they've made the bet to go after streaming. Whether that's the right bet, I don't think anyone can say at this point because strategy by nature is a guessing game. You can do a whole lot of analysis, but at the end of the day, it's a lot of guessing and you've got to watch what happens because even if you do the right analysis, you don't know how competitors are going to react. You don't know if something like COVID comes along. So what's the insight here? The insight here is that in any sector, and I mean any sector in the world, there's an underlying infrastructure that underpins that sector. And if you map this out in a value chain, let's do a retail example. The first of a value chain for, let's say, building a Lacenza lingerie store in a mall is a bank needs to fund the purchase of the land. A real estate company then prepares the land and maybe builds a mall. Lacenza comes along and they will lease a store. But they could be very smart in the way they manage that store. They could have something like the Apple experience whereby their sales per store is so high that they're earning incrementally more cash flow per dollar spent than the company that owns the land where it's built. And the company that owns the land where it's built may be envious and say, hold on a second, these Lacenza stores are making a fortune. We're going to get into selling lingerie. But this is difficult, right? Because what is your core business? Do you know how to do that? And this is the difficulty here. When you want to catch the next big strategy wave, whatever it is in your sector, but an easy way to see this is to simply map out the layers in your sector. I mean, you can take another example, right? We can take the example of aluminum, as Americans like to say, aluminum. Aluminum companies make aluminum, which they sell to largely automobile companies, which then have phenomenal branding, stick a Porsche logo on it. I'm assuming Porsche makes some cars in aluminum, just an example, they may not. And they sell it for a fortune. But I've spoken to aluminum executives who are incredibly envious of how much money the end users of aluminum make. Or even Coke cans, for example. Should an aluminum company do what AT&T is doing and say, we don't want to just create the infrastructure, the base. 
but we want to go downstream. So the question becomes, how far downstream do you want to go? How far downstream can you go? There is obviously be money to be made in creating the what is called as the dumb infrastructure, where there's just the land, whether it is just the um, telco infrastructure, whether it's just the aluminium. And you've got to decide because here's the thing you've got to remember, some sectors by default have low returns and there's nothing wrong with that. But pursuing another sector, another part of the value chain, another part of that layer of the infrastructure for higher returns sounds good if you can do it. But a lot of people cannot do it. And that's always going to be the difficult thing. So the insight here is that when you get caught into these stories about catching the next strategy wave and so on, yes, but there's always going to be someone who needs to provide the telco infrastructure. And you can be really good at that and you can innovate in that. Granted, not many people are innovating in that, but that doesn't mean nobody could. The next story we're reading here is um, the combination of Fiat, Chrysler and Peugeot Group to create a new holding company, which is looking to merge the assets and you know all those wonderful things M&A bankers talk about and M&A strategy consultants about efficiency, synergies and so on. By default, most mergers fail. But this merger is a little bit interesting because given the size of the asset base, the millions of cars made, the number of factories around the world, this is going to come down to operational efficiency. And operational efficiency is very, very hard to achieve. It's very easy to say we're going to go from zero to 90% operational efficiency and celebrate that. That's good. But what you have to consider, and here's the insight, and slides members can see this when you put in the operation strategy study into slides. The bottom line here is that going from 0% to 80% or 90% increase in operational efficiency is obviously something to worth celebrate about. You should celebrate that. But the question you have to ask yourself is given your competition, given where you want to compete, given the price point you want to compete at, what is the operational efficiency you have to achieve? It's not difficult to know this. The bigger your fixed cost base, remember the cost, volume, profit curve, the bigger your fixed cost base, relative to your variable cost base. You need much more volume, but your price typically goes down a little bit. It happens to most companies over time. The price keeps going down and down. It, it may go up for a long time, but eventually as you get enough volume, prices start dropping. Now, as prices start dropping, it becomes an efficiency game. A 1% change in efficiency can give you that cash flow to pass on savings to your consumers so that you can put out a lower price product. And if you are in the commodity segment, you are going to be competing on price. So I think that the executives at Fiat, Chrysler and Peugeot have a lot of juggling to do. Because on the one hand, they own the Alfa Romeo and the Maserati brands. Obviously, brands that have been positioned at the high end. But those brands are not big. They don't have the financial muscle to set up their own supply chains and R&D facilities to manufacture not just everything they need, but to the standard to compete with other marquee luxury brands. So what's invariably going to happen here? Invariably, there's going to be some sharing of parts, whether it's a chassis, whether it's a drivetrain. But if you're sharing parts from a low-end brand with a high-end brand, at a certain point, consumers are going to notice that which means that your margins overall in aggregate start falling, falling, and falling. But if your margins overall start falling, you become more of a commodity brand. And again, there's nothing wrong with being a commodity player in the automotive sector. Many companies do that. 
they're in the low end. But the lower and lower you go on a price point, the more and more operational efficiencies become important. And there are many insights here, but I think the most important one in operation strategy is that for too long we think about operation strategies, how to produce more and how to de-bottleneck your facilities. That's important, but it's not the most important thing as you get greater and greater volume in your production line. For a volume producer, operational efficiency becomes by far the most important thing. And as you compete with Korean companies, with Japanese companies, with Chinese companies, with European companies, and obviously with American companies as well, a 1%, 2% change in operational efficiency can make all of the difference. And that's what companies need to think about. The next and final big topic I want to talk about today is China's Belt and Road Strategy, also known as the Silk Road Initiative. Now, a lot has been said about this, right? And there's a lot that can be said about this. But I want to get maybe a little bit down to the nuts and bolts of this. If China is setting up a network of interconnected sites to seamlessly move its products from China over land, sea and air to its biggest market, which is Europe at this point in terms of proximity, obviously, because America is a big market as well, but there's no way to connect it by a rail and so on. A lot of the work that the Belt and Road Initiative is going to be doing and a lot of its success is going to come down to how does it manage a railway line? How does it manage a port? Can it get the efficiencies? Can it make it successful? Can it be profitable? Can it be profitable in such a way that the state-owned company, in most cases the state-owned company that runs the port, is successful? The consumers who buy the product which comes through this connections and logistics lines gets the product at a price that they feel is reasonable? Does the supplier from China feel that the price they pay for shipping makes it economical for them? Does the little transit towns that connect the railway lines and ports feel, you know what, this rail company is doing a good job, they're paying a good salary, volume is going up, and they feel that it's worthwhile. The insight here is that all the stakeholders need to feel that they're gaining something. But for all the stakeholders to feel that they're gaining something, if you had to boil it down to its essence, the insight is that the port or the railway line has to be profitable, but not at the expense of a stakeholder. That's the key insight. It's too early to say what is happening because it's just been rolled up. But the signs are encouraging despite some hiccups, as there will always be hiccups. That is the normal for any infrastructure project anywhere in the world. For slides members, we have put together a strategy document, entire strategy, showing you how we would go in and optimize, de-bottleneck a port facility that has been neglected for a long time that has now just been taken over by a new entity. You can see what are the steps involved. What are the priorities? What are the roadmaps? What is the analysis? What are the quick wins you can push through? How do you manage the stakeholders? If you are taking over a port that's been mismanaged to bring it back to profitability. Because unless that port is brought back to profitability, value cannot flow to each stakeholder. And if value cannot flow to each stakeholder, stakeholder is unhappy. And a very unhappy stakeholder is not something you want. So the, one of the deepest insights about the Belt and Road strategy is at the end of the day, it comes down to managing a logistics line and managing it proficiently, profitably, I would say humanely as well, and that applies to any project anywhere in the world, especially those built in emerging markets. To tie up 
I want to talk a little bit about leadership because I think that's quite important. A lot of clients talk to us about leadership and how to become better leaders. And we've obviously worked with many clients over well over a decade, some of them for nine, 10 years, helping them become better leaders. And the thing about leadership is that it's very confusing. It's very nebulous. It's very grainy. People always tell me, Michael, I want to be an inspirational leader. I want to be a motivational leader. I want to help my team feel inspired. Those are all nice things about leadership, but I know many leaders who get fired even though they inspired their teams. I know many leaders who got fired even though they motivated their teams. I know many leaders who got fired even though they're able to set a compelling vision for their teams. The leaders who don't get fired are the ones who help their teams be successful by giving them the tools and helping them be successful. Even if you're the CEO of a company with 100,000 employees, your team is actually your direct reports because you work through your direct reports. So I have a client who runs the Asia division for one of the biggest electronics companies in the world. He was a coaching client, worked at McKinsey, and then we helped him move into this role. And he's obviously doing very well. He's a contender to be CEO one day. And I remember he was telling me, well, how do I lead? You know, I've read all these books. And it all talks about setting a vision. I said, you gotta remember there's a lot of things you can do and you don't have a lot of time. This is what you need to do. You have a team of direct reports. How you unlock their potential is what's going to determine whether the potential of the entire organization is unlocked. So let's assume in his case, he had seven direct reports from design, R&D, manufacturing, and so on. Other areas, including sales. They have their direct reports. So he is the head of Asia. Below him is the A group, which is his direct reports, B group, which is the next level, C group, and so on. So what I have to teach him is that, okay, you're going to meet them on a weekly, bi-weekly basis. To be a good leader, you've got to set up a system and a process so that when you speak to them, you don't just motivate them, you give them the tools, but you lead a process so that you can help them achieve their goals. That's step one. Step two is then you have to teach them that same process so that when they meet their leadership, that's groups, that's level C, they unlock their potential and it cascades down the organization. Too often, we think of leadership as something feel good. No, a good leader gets his team to deliver in a good, successful, nice way. And that's how you need to think about leadership. Any book you read about leadership which just talks about inspiration, motivation, and so on, you can do all those things. But if your teams are not successful, you're not a very good leader. And if your teams are not very successful, no matter how motivational you may be, if you hit seven quarters of declining revenue, no amount of speeches is going to make up for the lack of enthusiasm they feel because they are not successful. A leader always focuses on success. And again, I'm not saying success at all costs. No, it's about empowering. It's about teaching their direct reports, unlock the value they have. And there are tools to do this. There are methodologies and tools to do this. With our executive coaching clients, we have something called the Leadership Journal, which is only available to them. It, we've never made it available to the public. And in this, it teaches them the techniques that they can use. We even show them how to run a meeting on a Monday, on a Friday. What do they do in that meeting so that they are helping their direct reports be successful? And if your company grows and your team is successful and they're learning new skills and the teams of those teams are successful, you will be a successful leader. And that's how you need to think about leadership. So as always, don't be excited when you learn how to do analysis. I always tell people there's a time and place to be a great strategist who only does analysis. If 
you are so excited about the analysis, but your role is to actually get things done. You're a leader and a leader gets things done. So I hope that people listening to this understand this. We obviously apply a lot of analytic skills, a lot of thinking and a lot of deep understanding of value and so on. But at the end of the day, we've got to convince someone to do something about it in a way that's successful. And that's what you should be thinking about as you listen to these insights and as you plan out your career going forward. As always, it's a great pleasure to speak to you and I'll see you next week, Monday at 8 a.m. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.